7, verses 1 through 7. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tracy. Um, this has turned out to be the strangest Advent series I've ever preached. Um, what with all the interruptions and, you know, anyhow. Uh, hopefully next week will <laughs> be a little more uh, conventional. Anyway. So uh, we are finally getting to the third uh, message in a, a mini-series of three messages within a larger series of messages about how we are supposed to live as followers of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, the, the series has been broken up um, because of things like ice storms, and uh, in this little mini-series has sort of been... Uh, interrupted, but um, I think it's important that we, we finish where we, uh, where we wanted to because uh, we've been trying to build a biblical case, so to speak, for, or a case, I should say, for the biblical Christian ethic around sexuality. And uh, we live in an age and in a culture where there is a tremendous amount of confusion around the issue of sexuality and how it relates to everything from our our orientation to our identity to even our gender and so we've been trying to kind of uh, bring a bit of clarity to these very complex stand was how in our current culture um, the question about uh, uh, sexuality is very closely tied up with the question of identity and identity in our culture is something that a person actually discovers or, or you could almost say creates from the inside out. In other words, who you are, who I am, who any of us is, is something that we define ourselves based upon what we discover within ourselves, uh, our, in, our, our in, internal, sorry, our internal desires our internal uh, proclivities, our internal hopes and dreams, etc. That's what, when we express that to the world, then we are uh, discovering and actualizing our identity as an individual. And of course, 
uh, our sexuality is tied up uh, with that. And then what we did um, uh, after that, so the second one, we talked about how, um, how the Bible's understanding of both identity and how sexuality relates to identity clashes with our culture's understanding. Um, and I'm not going to try to summarize all that for you this morning. Um, this stuff is on our website. These sermons are there for, for those of you who might want to follow up and check them out. Um, but that one was kind of complicated, so uh, I'm not going to go there again. What we're going to do today, hopefully, is we're going to see how the Bible's understanding of sexuality uh, restores, hopefully, sanity both to the culture and to the church. And why I say the church as well is because as I've been exploring this subject more and more over the last um, number of months, it's, I've come to the conclusion, not because I'm so smart, but because smart people told me, um, that the church has got a screwed up understanding of sexuality just like the culture does. It may not be the same screwed up understanding, but it, it is about what, uh, what the messed up uh, understanding is, then uh, what Jesus has to say about uh, a biblical sexual ethic and hopefully a way forward for the church. So that's, that's what, we're, what we're going to explore um, this morning. The first thing we need to understand is that in our culture today, uh, there is a tremendous amount of confusion around sexuality because at the, the same time, the culture both minimizes sexuality and uh, idolizes sexuality. That's very impressive that we can do that at the same time, <laughs> both minimize it and, uh, and idolize it, but that is what we do. In our culture, sex is generally understood to be kind of like no big deal. Now, the Me Too movement has been demonstrating that, uh, that, that that's just not true, and we don't actually believe that's true, but in a lot of ways, our culture still seems to think that sex is not such a big deal. We live in what's called a, a hookup culture. You've probably heard that phrase before. We live in the swipe right culture of Tinder and other apps like that that are simply set up for, to help people find um, maybe a relationship, but really a sexual encounter. Uh, we have uh, obviously a pornography industry that is uh, a multi-billion dollar industry, etc. And then we have just the jokes that you see on TV or uh, as you're streaming your favorite TV shows, just the, 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 the constant joking about sexuality that goes on uh, in our culture. And it demonstrates that, that we have kind of a low view of sex. It's just an appetite. It's just another kind of thing like, you know, um, being hungry. You, you have, uh, you know, you, you, you want something salty and sometimes you want something sexy and there's not really any difference between those two things uh, because it's just part of who we are as human beings. And yet, at the same time, our culture seems to glorify sex as though being engaged in sexual activity is absolutely necessary for human flourishing. If you're not having sex, if you're not having lots of sex, and if you're not having 
a lot of great sex, then apparently you're not really living life. Go into any convenience store or a grocery store that sells these, uh, these magazines like uh, uh, Cosmopolitan and uh, um, what, are, what other ones are like that in that genre? L. Come on, people. I know, I know you read them. Throw them out. <laughs> Anyhow, you, you see there's, there's a constant um, barrage of articles and uh, essays encouraging you to find better ways to have the ultimate sexual experience. And we have movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin that, that make fun of the prospect that someone could actually be uh, a long way into their adult life and not have had a sexual ex- encounter it yet because that would just be, that would be devastating. And so when you come along and you say that the Bible has put restrictions around sexual uh, expression, that sexual expression is supposed to be limited to a, um, a male-female uh, marriage relationship that is permanent and that is exclusive and that is, um, uh, what's the other word? Permanent, exclusive, exclusive and, and includes the whole self. Then our culture says that those restrictions create too great a sacrifice for people to, who don't fit within those parameters. A fully flourishing, actualized human being, and you tell a certain segment of the the culture uh, that they don't fit the parameters within which that expression is allowed to happen according to the Bible, well, then you're telling them, you're telling them that they cannot be a fully actualized, flourishing human being, and therefore, that is too great a sacrifice to lay upon them. Couple that with the fact that sex has been uh, described as, as, or has been viewed as the pinnacle of intimacy, relational intimacy in our culture. And if you say to people, well, you can't have sexual relations or you can't marry because, you, uh, because your desires don't fit within the per, uh, permitted context that the Bible allows, then you're cutting them off from the pinnacle of intimacy forever. And how could you dare do that to people? Now, the church maybe hasn't adopted the low view of uh, sexuality, although you could argue that the church has when you look at the um, viewing habits of Christians when it comes to TV and movies and this kind of stuff. It seems like they have a very similar tolerance level to the, low, uh, to the kind of garbage that sometimes gets produced in mass media. But certainly the church has adopted this idolized view of sexuality. Think about this. We tell kids it may be even the greatest experience ever. Uh, So wait till you're married and then you'll have an awesome life because once you're married, you'll be able to have sex. And I just told you that sex is such a wonderful, massive, beautiful experience like no other experience in the world. And so the church somehow makes sexual intimacy or sexual expression or, or experience the idol, the pinnacle, I should say, of intimacy, just like the culture does. But, but we make it even worse because we tie it so closely to marriage that we look at the vast majority of 
single people in our churches as uh, unmarried people, as sort of doomed to a life of loneliness and unfulfillment. Talk to many single people who, who are not, you know, in their 20s and they're starting to date and that kind of stuff, but let's say they're 30 or 40 and they've been single for a long time and they haven't been in relationships for a long time and you will hear them describe how very often life in the church makes them feel like they're a project. Like their singleness is a problem to solve. Because when they talk to people, they say, so you're seeing anyone? Oh, no, oh, you're not? Oh, oh. Would you like to see one? Someone? Because I've got someone that you could see. And we talk about these people as, as being unmarried. We never talk about married people as being unsingle. So there is a stigma within the church about being single. Because we have placed marriage on this pinnacle as it's connected to sex, as, as the only place where we can find ultimate fulfillment, not just as a human being, but as a, as a human being in relationship, because that's where, where intimacy is found. We need, we need to bring some sanity to the problem. And the best place to turn, I think, for us to turn to find this sanity is to turn to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is also the most fully human being who ever lived, the most actualized human being who ever lived, and yet he was a celibate, single man. So the creator of sex, who now... And so we're going to look at what he has to say here in Matthew chapter 5. Here in Matthew chapter 5, in, in the, the two verses we read, he's, he's, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount right? And he's speaking to Jewish people who know the Old Testament very, very well. And so he says to them in verse 27, you have heard that it has said you shall not commit adultery. And of course, these people listening, they'd be like, yes, we've heard that said many, many times because we go to synagogue and, uh, each week and we hear the Torah and we hear the law being spoken week after week. And so they're very familiar with this. But then Jesus goes on and he says, but I tell you, and then they're probably thinking when, he, when they hear, but I tell you, they're like, oh yes, yeah, so Jesus, this new rabbi, he's going to give us a, a different interpretation of adultery, probably going to loosen the, uh, the, the restraints around sexuality because, you know, um, the law was given kind of a couple thousand years ago and we're a far more, far more progressive uh, culture than way back then, and we know a little bit more. And Jesus goes on and he says, but, you, uh, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Shockingly, he actually tightens the rules on sexuality rather than loosens them. And he redefines adultery in this passage as being an internal attitude, okay? Not, an ex not so much about what you do with your genitals, but it's about what you do with your eyes. Adultery happens first not in the bedroom, but it happens first in the heart. Now, why is Jesus being so restrictive here about sexual 
relations and about what adultery is. That he goes so far as to say that, that adultery happens before you even commit the physical act if you, have, if you have desired to commit that act with someone in your heart. Why? And here's the principle that is the basis of the entire Bible's understanding of sexual, sexual ethics. Jesus says that every human being has a sexual integrity that is so precious to him that it should not be violated even in the privacy of another person's mind. I think that's profound, so I'm going to say it again. Jesus says that every single person in humanity has a sexual integrity that is so precious to him that it should not be violated even in the privacy of someone else's mind. In other words, people matter to Jesus to the point that they matter to Him, it matters to Him how you think of them. You ever thought of that before? I mean, I have kind of, but not like really. Like how I think about other people, another person to, to satisfy my desires and turn them into a commodity, frankly. And that's what our culture does with sex and sexuality. Other people simply exist for me to satisfy my sexual desires and, and my appetites. When I do that, even if I'm just doing it in my own mind, I'm picking a fight with Jesus. Because he cares what I think of others, not just how I behave toward others, but what's in my head and what's in my heart about others. Now, here's the implication. If that's the foundation, here's the, here's the tenet, the, the implication, implicated tenet. Sam Albury, who has uh, written and spoken on this subject a lot, and I have a, I have a lot of respect for him. He's very wise. He says, he says, Jesus is basically saying that if you've been through puberty, you're a sexual sinner. And that is regardless of who you're attracted to, regardless of your orientation, regardless of any of that stuff, every single one of us is a sexual sinner. It reads, regardless of your status, whether you're married or single, he levels the playing field. You know, sometimes you hear about kind of affirming churches and non-affirming churches. Jesus, in this statement, is non-affirming of all people. We're all damaged, and we're all doing damage, you see. We're all, we've all been violated, and we're all violating. And what's so important about understanding this and remembering this is, is because Jesus is not saying to anybody in specific what he does not say to everybody in general. He's not picking out a particular subgroup of the human population and laying into them and making life harder for them and calling them to a different standard or calling them to, to higher expectations. No, he's calling every single human being to repent, repent and embrace his ethic. Why? Because we are so precious to him. See, the parameters around sexuality that Jesus lays down are there not simply because Jesus had a high view of sex, not because he was prudish 
not because he was neurotic, not because he had some weird Freudian neuroses that he couldn't get over. No, it's because he had a very, very high view of sexuality. He understood its power and he understood its, its, its importance, but he also has an extremely high view of us, of you, of people made in the image of God. And he says, all of us are defacing and debasing that image regardless of whether we've engaged in any kind of physical, sexual sin because we've all engaged in some way in our minds and in our hearts in that debasement. What's so fascinating is that people will say, yeah, you know, I guess I kind of be, I kind of have a hunger problem and I can, er, hunger, <laughs> anger problem, and I guess I can kind of admit, I can't, I can't, I guess I can kind of admit that, or maybe, yeah, I can be a little bit consumeristic and materialistic, I know that I, I have that issue, I really like nice things, or maybe I, I struggle with forgiveness, there are people in my life that I hold grudges against, and I know that that's kind of hard to do, but unless you are caught in the act of some kind of sexual act, or you're caught in front of the computer viewing pornography, or something like that. So many people, they don't want to admit that they've got sexual brokenness in, their, in them as well, that they struggle with sexual sin inside themselves as well. And Jesus, right here, he is making the assumption, and he is calling us to admit that every one of us is living with that right here, right now. Everybody. Nobody's exempt. And so he calls us to an ethic that is not simply abstain until you're married and then go crazy when you are. He's calling us to an ethic of holiness. Because I can tell you right now, as a married man, I can speak for every single married man in this room, um, marriage in no way, in no way solves your problems with sex. All you single guys in this room who think if I can just hold out until I'm married, all my problems will go away, it ain't true. You know what the number one subgroup of porn viewers is? Like, you know, you've got your age categories, you've got your type of people. So you know what the number one group is? Married men. And so he calls us to holiness. Now, that's not easy. He calls us to chastity in singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Neither of which is easy. And don't you, I just told you, the number one group of people viewing pornography on any given day is married men. And Jesus' view seems so countercultural, right? And in fact, actually, in our culture right now, it's not seen just as counterculture, it's actually seen as immoral. Fifty years ago, the Christian ethic on sexuality was kind of seen as uh, prudish, 
right? You know, this is the 60s. We're going to throw off and we're going to get rid of all these puritanical rules that have repressed our inner selves and we are just going to swing, baby, and life is going to be great. And the church has been holding us back all this time. Now, the church's view on sexuality is not just seen as sort of super moral and restrictive, it's actually seen as immoral and dangerous. And people may say, well, it's, too, it's just too hard. It's too hard to practice this in a culture like, uh, like today. But you know what? It was, it was hard to practice what Jesus was saying in a culture like the one he spoke it in, too. The ancient Greco-Roman culture, in that culture, you didn't marry for love. That was dumb. You married for economics. It was good for business or it was good for his social standing. If, if he was looking for a companion, that's what a mistress was for. If he was simply looking for sex, that's what slaves were for. He could take that whenever he wanted. And if he was too, for, too poor to avoid, uh, or sorry, to, to own slaves, he could just go to the brothel. And if you were a woman back in that culture, you were basically considered as property. And so when you were married, then you were your husband's property and you were expected to be completely faithful to your husband. But if you were not married, then you were in danger because now you didn't have the protection of a man and any man who had the power and the desire could use you in the, de- in the way that he saw fit. That's the basic milieu in which Jesus and the Apostle Paul spoke this Christian ethic into. And Christianity, it comes along and it introduces all kinds of new concepts that were never believed before in any culture, really. And all of a sudden, they come on the scene through Jesus and through Paul. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 7 to just see what these, these concepts were very quickly. First of all, the concept of consent You know, we live in a culture today where it is obvious to us that sexual experience should only happen through consent. The idea of human agency and and human freedom and that two parties consent to have an encounter together, we just assume that that's the way it should be. But in the history of the world, that's not how it was at all. Men had power and powerful men had a lot of power and so they could simply take what they wanted. They didn't have to ask. The idea of consent didn't exist. So when you look at 1 Corinthians 7, if you look at verse 4, in the first part it says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And here are these Greek Corinthian men listening to this, and they're saying, that's right, that's how it works. How it always worked, how it's always going to work, and how it should work. And then they keep reading, and Paul says in, verse, in the second half, he says, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And they go, what? And this is specifically rooted in the fact that the Christian worldview says that every human being is made in the image of God. And as Jesus said, every one of us has a sexuality, a, a, an, an aspect of ourselves that is sexual, that is, that is uh, uh, so precious to him that it needs to, the integrity of it needs to be protected by all of us. Second concept is the concept of mutuality. Mutuality. Look at verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. You know, Paul doesn't say, look, um, your wife is yours, so take. 
Instead, he says, you are your wife's, so give. Because sex is not a means of self-fulfillment, sex is not a means of self-expression, but according to scripture, sex is a means of donation, self-donation and self-giving. Sex is meant to be a picture of one person giving their whole selves to another person. Think about it. You, you give yourself fully, you give yourself exclusively, you give yourself permanently. You're giving yourself fully because the act itself requires the whole person, every part of who you are. You're giving yourself exclusively because you can't have sex with one person wholly and fully and another person wholly and fully at the same time. But you're also giving yourself uh, exclusively because you can't give yourself, oh, I just said that, good, wow. Uh, you, you're never violated by the inclusion of another party into it. And it's meant to be permanent because it lasts for a lifetime. Third concept that Paul describes here, that is, again, these are, these are introduced by Christianity that did not exist in the culture in which they found themselves, nor would you find it in virtually any of the cultures of, of uh, the other civilizations in ancient history. And the third concept was that of equality. And what I mean by that is Christianity actually elevates and honors singleness and chastity. In verse 7, Paul says this, I wish all of you were as I am. And he's single. But he says, each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another that. And what he's saying is, is that there's the gift of singleness and there's the gift of marriage. And he's actually describing singleness as a gift. Back in that culture, singleness was a curse, okay? It was a curse because it was economically and socially devastating to many, many people. And frankly, in the modern church, singleness is often seen as a, as a curse as well. Because we go back to Genesis chapter 2, and we read where God said it was not good for Adam to be alone, and so we assume that singleness is bad for people, and that marriage is good for people, and that denies the intrinsic goodness of singleness, the power that enables them to cope with not ever having sex. And the result with that is, is that we say to young people, or we, we, we don't say this out loud, but this is what we're telling them by the way we are thinking and the way we interact and the way we behave. What we're basically telling them is that they've not really started life until they're married. They're not really fully human until they're married. Which in turn sometimes leads single people into sinful relationships because they say, well, I don't have the gift of singleness, so I need to be in a relationship and I don't have very good pickings around here because all the guys are duds or all the girls are whacked and so I go and I find a relationship somewhere else that doesn't please God, but at least I'm fulfilling my, my calling because I don't have the gift of singleness. But Paul calls singleness and marriage both gifts. And did you ever stop to realize that Every single one of us is born with one of them. We're all born with the gift of singleness. Now, our culture says singleness is good, but chastity is bad. But nowhere, anywhere at all in the Bible does it say that sex 
is necessary for human flourishing? Nowhere. So not having sex is not this great tragedy that the world, and frankly, in some ways, the church, leads our single people to believe. Because singleness is a gift. Now, why, why does Paul say that? Why does he call it a gift? And this is the fourth thing. And this is the ultimate purpose. This is the ultimate concept about sexuality introduced by the Christian faith. And it's unique to Christianity. It's essential to the human. And so to deny someone their sexuality is to deny them their personhood. But if you say that, then what you're saying is, is that Jesus was not fully human. But he was. And he actually shows us where we find our true humanity. You ever notice that in the Bible, God is called the husband of his people so often, and Jesus, who was single and chaste, was called the bridegroom? Why? Because the ultimate purpose of sex and marriage itself is actually to work as a signpost to the true fulfillment that you and I are longing for in God himself, and only he can satisfy And I know when you're single and you hear a pastor say that and you want to be married and you hear a pastor say that, you go, oh, that's just so easy for you to say. But you know, if you could just sit down with some honest married people who tell you that, you know, being married is not necessarily that much easier than being single. There are many nights when people fall into bed after a hard day of being married and say, this is a grind, this is tough. And given all the sexual problems that that we described just a few minutes ago that aren't solved by marriage, again, if you're thinking that marriage will just get you out of that issue and get you past that issue, you're kidding yourselves. Because that's not what sex was ever designed to be for. Sex was meant to be a signpost to point us to our ultimate longing and need that is fulfilled in God alone, in God himself. You ever, how many of you have seen the movie Zoolander? I know I'm old when I say that. Zoolander. The premise of the movie is, I I got this from Sam Albury too. The premise of the movie is basically the better looking you are, the dumber you are. Okay? And it's about this guy named Zoolander who was this very handsome male model and he was dumber than everybody else, obviously. And uh, at one point, a group of people want to honor him by, um, by building a school and naming it after him. And so they invite him to, to come see a model of the school. And so he walks into this office, and, and uh, this architect's office, and he sees on the table this model of the school, and he starts to furrow his brow, and he becomes very, very consternated, and he's upset and angry, and he looks at this model, and he says, what, is this a school for ants? It needs to be at least three times bigger than this, because he's dumb, right? But what has he done? He's mistaken the model for the real thing. And friends, sex and romance will not ultimately fulfill anyone because no person and no experience can complete us because we were designed for a greater and deeper union that only God can provide. And so whether you're married or single, 
your deepest desires are not met by a partner here on earth. The thing we most want is only met by our Redeemer. And you know what this does? This puts marriage and sex in its proper place. Yes, married people are given a gift to show in a small way the ultimate marriage between the church and Jesus Christ. But singles are given a gift as well to bear witness to the faithful nature of God's love. And in, biblically, there is neither one state or the other that is intrinsically more fulfilling than the other. I, we, we, you know, we don't have engage groups going on right now, but I ask that the stuff for engage groups connected to this message be put in the bulletin anyway so that, I don't know, you want to go home and talk to your family about it or something, of a faithful Jesus waiting for the consummation of his relationship at the end of the age. And you'll see on there, um, under Engaging the Heart, there's a quote from Glenn Harrison. And he says, It's important to grasp that single Christians who abstain from sex outside the marriage bond bear witness to the faithful nature of God's love with the same authority as those who have sex inside the marriage bond. Both paint pictures of God's faithfulness, but in different ways. Denying yourself something can be just as, a, as potent a picture of a thing's goodness as helping yourself to it. Both single and married people who abstain from sex outside the marriage bond point to the same thing. They both deploy their sexuality that serve as a sign of the kingdom and the faithful character of God's passion. Let me close with a couple of things, three things very, very quickly. First of all, what everything I just told you, our culture will not accept. Ah. But the reason the culture will not accept it is because the culture doesn't understand it. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche actually said this. Watch a YouTube video of people dancing without the music on. It's true, right? You're like, look at those nuts. Well, the culture doesn't hear our music because the culture doesn't hear Jesus. And so sin, rather than holiness, feels natural to the culture. That's why Christopher Yuan says sin in general feels normal and natural to all of us, which is what makes it so enticing, addictive, and deceptive. What's not normal is putting death, putting to death the sin that dwells within us. Second of all, this means that God calls all of us to deny ourselves in this area of our lives. All of us are called to deny ourselves in this area of our He puts denial after it. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And if you are a Christian, you know that sometimes it's going to feel like he's killing you to do that. It's going to feel sometimes like he's taking from you the thing that you really need to live. But that's what being a disciple is like. And ironically, it's when he's killing in us sometimes the thing that we think we really need to live that we actually become the real us. That's the great paradox 
inverted, ironic truth of the Christian faith. It's that we receive life when we die to self. And so the cost of discipleship for all people is the same because Christ demands it of all of us. And then the third thing, we need to reprogram the church to put sex and marriage in its proper place. Really what we all long for is intimacy. Regardless of our state, regardless of our orientation, regardless of our desires. And so, as Christopher Yuan put it in the, in the, in this, in the bulletin one more time, he says, this is near the top, of the engage group page. The Bible does not categorize humans according to our sexual desires or any other sort of desires. It's time to break free from that paradigm and embrace God's vision for sexuality. Holy sexuality consists of two paths, not choices, paths. Chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Chastity is more than simply abstention from marriage. It conveys covenantal commitment. To all of us who are weary, to all of us who mourn and seek comfort, to all of us who fail and need strength, and to all of us who sin and Jesus and need forgiveness, Jesus says, Come. Because I am what your heart truly longs for. I'm your heart's true love. <laughs> 